Is this the Paranormal Food Consciousness Podcast? Welcome to the Paranormal Food Consciousness Podcast. We're here in the historic district of Philadelphia in the middle of a thunderstorm. Yeah, it, quite a thunderstorm it is. This is the last site um, in Philadelphia that we're at where it's claimed that Ben Franklin blew his kite. There's several places around Pennsylvania where um, his historic uh, flying of the kite was supposed to happen. So let's take this picture and then we can head to the last site which is outside of Philadelphia. Hang on. Okay. Let me get Okay, I got it. You ready? Yep. All right, let's go. Okay. Are we even sure Ben Franklin flew a kite in a thunderstorm? Well, whether he did or not is debated just as much as where it might have happened. On May 10th, 1752, he supposedly flew the kite with a key on it to test his hypothesis that lightning and electricity we're late. Come on, let's go. All right, we're here. Let me unlock the car. Oh, get in. All right. Whew. Silence. Whew. Yeah, that's much better. Oh, hey. Hey, get that wet umbrella off me. So, um, so we'll, we're going to go drive over to Bensalem, and it's about 19 miles northeast from Philadelphia. But... With the magic of the internet, our time travel is nearly instantaneous. Here we are. Oh, my gosh. You ready to get out? Yeah, that was a very fast trip. (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) Oh, now the the thunderstorm sound seems even worse. It, It does. It does. Okay. Let's let's go. You got the umbrella ready? I'm okay. gonna open the door. Yep. Oh no. Oh, here we okay. go. Oh my gosh. Ah. Wow. Wait. Okay. I'll hold the umbrella. What? Wait a minute. What? What is that figure? Oh my god! It, it's ghostly. What? It, you- it looks like Ben Franklin. Flying a kite? Oh, let's get closer. I can't let's tell. Let's take a shot. Yeah, let's no, take a shot. Well, Hurry. wait a minute. Let's, let's, let's come on. Let's run over there real quick. Oh, my God. This ground, it's so wet. Just a little uh, closer. Just a mm. little closer. Hold on. I don't think. Let me take a shot. Hold on. Oh, oh. Hold on. Did you get it? Yeah, I got okay. it. I got it. I. I I, I okay. kind of don't think this is a good idea. Okay, let's run back to the car. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. The thunderstorm's getting louder. Oh, jeez. Ah! Oh, my. Ah! I, 
Yow. I am sopping wet. I'm glad that's over. Oh. I'm, I'm hungry. Let's make something to eat. Yeah, let's get started with the podcast. I'm famished. I'm hungry. Let's get cooking. are going to do two different types of meatballs, one with meat and one without. In honor of Ben Franklin, they are from Elizabeth Cleland's 1775 book, A New and Easy Method of Cookery. It was one of the most popular books during the time period. Oh, that's interesting. Sounds good. Yes. So Benjamin Franklin, according to the editors of his book, The Art of Eating, did not care so much for sophisticated cooking. When he was about 16 years old, he read a book by Thomas Tryon that addressed the ethical questions of meat-eating and recommended a vegetarian diet. There's a lot written on this, and Franklin himself writes a lot about it. Eventually, he did go back to eating meat, and we'll cover that later on. But this first recipe reflects the type of food he might have eaten during that time period. There are some recipes that are in his small book, The Way to Health, Long Life, and Happiness, or A Discourse on Temper. But they're mainly advising on the manner of how to do things, such as melt butter and grill steaks. So they've got like a a minced pie recipe that looks good, but it needs to mature for a few months. I don't know. We we could think about making that at Christmas. A few months. It's a pretty complicated recipe for the time. And there's a lot of alcohol recipes in here, too. Let me look up this, this recipe, minced pie. The apple pudding one is also interesting, though it sounds more like a dump. Yeah, you've got to use suet, raisins, different kinds of fruits, and then basically you let it set for several months in a pot. Does it have actual meat in it? Yes, it does. And if we're going to do something like that for Christmas, we'll have to think about starting it now. (laughs) But anyway, if any of our listeners want to pick up the book, it's In the Art of Eating, and it talks about how to melt butter, to broil steaks. Sauce for boiled ducks and rabbits, oyster sauce for boiled turkey, puff paste, a rice pudding baked, how to roast a pig, how to make mince pies, 
how to make an apple pudding, a way of making beer with essence of spruit to make white coddle, orange shrub, and to make raisin wine, bullion tablets, maize, and bread with maize flour and wheat flour. I mean, there's some good things in there. Ben Franklin, he was very much a diplomat too, and he was interested in selling what was available in the United States, such as corn. So in a lot of his readings, you'll find that he's promoting a lot of the things that were native to America when he was negotiating for the colonies at the time. Mm. So that's what we're going to do. How does that sound? Two different meatballs. Two different meatballs. So that should be interesting because maybe one will be exceptional or maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so let's talk about the vegetarian meatballs. Like I mentioned with the book from Elizabeth Cleland's 1775 book, there's a really nice video from the Townsend on YouTube, and they have somebody cooking this. James Townsend and son puts this on, and Ryan, a friend of theirs, often helps with the recipe. So you can Google them, and it varied period at the time. The recipe that we're going to follow for the vegetarian meatballs, which they say another sort of forced meatballs, Crumb a penny loaf, add to it eight ounces of butter or beef suet, mince very fine, lemon peel, parsley, and a bit of onion shred fine is also added to it. Season with pepper, salt, nutmeg, and wet it with two eggs. Roll it in your hands into a paste and then make it in small balls, which are the size of a nutmeg, and then fry them in butter. Mm, yum, yum. See how my voice gets so deep? <laughs> mm, yum, yum. <laughs> Gee, I must be hungry. <laughs> well, I, I noticed that some of these recipes that we've had talked about in different episodes... A lot of them use this lemon peel for brightness and flavor. Yeah. And it always seems to taste really good that way. Yes, it does. You you think about hush puppies and, and things that you get because this sort of comes out like a hush puppy, but a, mm. actually a better, more tasty one. I mean, the lemon in there does add a nice freshness and the parsley and nutmeg. You see nutmeg through mm, nutmeg. many, many, many of these recipes. You I, like know, I used butter in this one. To be vegetarian. And I used quite a bit of onion because there was a, there's a little bit of spices in there, but you really get a lot of flavor from the onion too. Oh, I wanted you to peel some garlic. No, <laughs> we had enough garlic in the last episode. <laughs> had to peel a whole pound of garlic. Yes, that was quite time consuming. <laughs> But much better if you boiled the garlic. So that's the recipe. Basically, you're going to need equal amounts of butter and breadcrumbs. Mm -hmm. And then lemon peel, I'd say you only need maybe a quarter of a lemon peel. Parsley to taste, anything from a teaspoon to a tablespoon. You probably want to have a third or half cup of onion. And then pepper and salt to taste, nutmeg, and a couple of eggs. It rolled out just fine into hush puppy form. Mm-hmm. And it really did take, but they're just smaller. You know, they want you to do them the size of the nutmeg, which works really good if you're not like deep frying things. And so. Because that's pretty small. It is. It is. Compared to what we have. You know, I guess I, I guess back in the days, that's how they, uh, they weren't huge meatballs. Plus, this is very <laughs> budget safe. A good way to 
Oh, yeah. stretch, stretch your, your budget. Yeah, stretch your budget. We'll talk about the, compare these two, the results of these two recipes after we talk a little bit more about Ben Franklin's haunting that are supposedly happen. Uh, oh, okay. Mostly near Philadelphia, though there are some in Boston too. And then, you know, we'll talk about the meat recipe too, and then compare okay. and contrast it. Let's spend some time on Ben Franklin's statue and haunting. I looked in Gipheed, and do you want to read about his uh, memorial? Okay, let me pull this up here, and we'll talk about that. Okay, it says the Benjamin Franklin National Memorial, located in the rotunda of the Franklin Institute Science Museum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, features a colossal statue of a seated Benjamin Franklin, American writer, inventor, and statesman. The 20-foot-tall memorial was sculpted by James Earl Fraser between 1906 and 1911 and dedicated in 1938 with a weight of 30 short tons. The statue rests on a 92 short ton pedestal of white cerveza marble. It is the focal piece of the Memorial Memorial Hall of the Franklin Institute, which was designed by John Windham and modeled after the Roman Pantheon. Mm. The statue and the Memorial Hall were designated as the Benjamin Franklin National Memorial in 1972. It is the primary location memorializing Benjamin Franklin in the U.S. And yet, that's not where the hauntings are reportedly taking place. He's represented in portraits and nearly every media. Painting, prints, sculptures, medallions, ceramics, textiles. Even according to Franklin himself, his face was as well known as that of the moon. Mm -hmm. During his lifetime, Benjamin Franklin and his portrait became a symbol of American science, innovation, and civic leadership. So let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the hunt. And for this, we'll refer to a couple of articles you can find online. Searching for Ben Franklin's Dancing Ghost. This is a blog by Kelly Conaboy. In Philadelphia's Old City Neighborhood, Cobblestone streets and horse manure-scented air delight the mm. senses as parents drag their few children around to various historically significant buildings. Right in the heart of the old things, next to Independence Hall and down the street from the Liberty Bell, is another old thing, the American Philosophical Society building. According to Philadelphia lore, Various websites and at least two books available for free on Google Books, Ben Franklin's spirit haunts the Philosophical Society's library hall. It also, with a frequency that can never be stated explicitly, causes the toga-clad Ben Franklin statue on the building's exterior to climb down and move as if it were made of flesh and blood rather than statue material and ghost. Ooh, a toga party. Yes, he's actually wearing a toga <laughs> in the statue. Now, if we look at the Travel Channel, they actually have an entry on his ghost too. Benjamin Franklin was instrumental in laying the foundation of government for the fledgling United States. He has a long list of contributions from his work as a writer, scientist, inventor, printer, philosopher, statesman, and 
economist. Although he was born in Boston, and there are lots of things in Boston uh, reflecting Ben Franklin's legacy, much of his legacy is rooted in Philadelphia, where Franklin is buried alongside his wife, Deborah. Now, Deborah, by the way, even though he wasn't very sophisticated, she was an excellent cook. So it is in Philadelphia that his spirit has been known to put in an appearance from time to time. In 1884, a cleaning woman was knocked over by a ghostly figure rushing towards a bookshelf in the Philosophical Society's library. Her description matched that of Franklin. There are also reports of people who spied on the Philosophical Society's statue of Franklin dancing along the streets. So, so numerous people have reported seeing him dancing on the streets. He's the party kind of guy. I guess so. <laughs> in addition to flying a kite, the place we went, Bentham, vignette in the beginning, is where people have said that they have seen sightings. So, just like we did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's a little bit more about the hauntings that are found about Ben Franklin in Philadelphia. There are a couple of interesting things about Ben Franklin. And I say things, it, it comes from... Philadelphia Magazine dated 2012, January 17th, and it is titled Five Things You Didn't Know About Ben Franklin. And I'm going to focus just on two of these because they're relevant to the topic of our podcast. Number one is, was Ben Franklin a mass murderer? When excavation was done on Franklin's London home in 1998, the remains of 10 dead bodies were found. What? While a few conspiratorial websites claimed that Ben was a mass murderer who killed for Satan, the truth is probably a bit more pedestrian, though plenty creepy. While in London, Ben had a roommate who was a med student named William Hewson. Hewson probably purchased dead bodies on the black market and then performed surgeries in a school that he ran in the back of the house. While Franklin was almost certainly aware of these illegal dissections, it is doubtful that he participated. Since the doctor had brought the bodies from grave robbers and grave robbing was illegal, he then buried them in the yard to avoid detection. The next one is a question about did Ben Franklin participate in drunken satanic orgies? <gasps> According to a History Channel special on the occult, in the late 1700s, a group of Englishmen formed the Hellfire Club, a fraternity dedicated to drinking, sex, and at times ridiculing Christianity and mocking its sacred rituals. Members met in monasteries to revel in black masses and drunken orgies. An occasional participant was the American ambassador to Great Britain, 
Benjamin Franklin. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I think the special is called The Hellfire Club on the History Channel. Benjamin Franklin did not seem to take kindly to the occult. And this article is from Penn State University, Carla Mulford, in the publication Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Now, earlier generations in Europe relied on magical thinking, interpreting events such as the eclipse through the lens of the occult, as if the universe were sending a message from heaven. By contrast, Franklin came of age at a time when supernatural readings were held in suspicion. He would go on to spread modern scientific views of astronomical events through his popular almanac and attempt to free people from the realm of the occult and astrological prophecy. Ancient people conceived of the heavens as built around human beings. For centuries, people subscribed to the Ptolemaic belief about the solar system, that the planets and the sun revolved around the stationary Earth. The idea that God drove the heavens is very old, because people thought that their God, or gods, guided all heavenly occurrences. It is not surprising that many people, ancient Chinese, for example, and Egyptians and Europeans, believed that what they witnessed in the skies above provided signs of future events. Nicholas Copernicus, whose life straddled the 15th and 16th centuries, used scientific methods to devise a more accurate understanding of the solar system. In his famous book, On the Revolutions of the Celestial Celestial. Spheres, published in 1543, Copernicus showed that the planets revolved around the sun. He didn't get it all right, though. He thought planetary bodies had circular orbits because the Christian God would have designed perfect circles in the cosmos. That planetary motion is elliptical, is a later discovery. Now, by the time that Benjamin Franklin grew up in New England, about 150 years later, few people still believed in the Potomac system. Most had learned that from living in an increasingly enlightened culture that Copernican system was more reliable. Franklin, like many in his generation, believed that knowledge about the scientific causes for changes in the environment could work to reduce human fears about what the skies might portend. It was an age of wonder still, but wonder was harnessed to technological advances that could help people understand better the world they lived in. Accurate instruments, such as the astrolabe, allowed people to measure the motions of the planets and thus predict movements in the heavens, and particularly phenomena like solar and lunar eclipses and the motions of planets like Venus. In his earliest printed articles, Franklin criticized the idea that education belonged solely to the elite. He hoped to bring knowledge to the common people so they could rely on expertise outside of what they might hear in churches. Franklin opted to use his own almanacs, along with his satirical pen, 
to help readers distinguish between astronomical events and astronomical predictions. That is so interesting. And kudos on the fancy autocorrect. Yes, we'll get a lot of use out of that. Mm -hmm. And tons of history here. This would be a really good time right now for us to take a break. When we return, we will see Ben Franklin move away from vegetarianism and cover our second meatball recipe. Bye-bye to vegetarianism. Franklin had been a vegetarian for a while, but it wasn't too long before he had an experience that made him turn away from vegetarianism. Tell that story. On a seed trip. Yeah, I was going to say it has to do with the (laughs) seed. Yes, on a sea trip. Franklin's fellow passengers fished when their boat was stranded off Block Island. Franklin noticed that inside a large codfish was another smaller fish swallowed whole. Here, Franklin saw what he thought to be natural law, the the favorite explanation of the age, by which every living thing flourished because of the death of another. Hence, human beings were justified in killing and eating lesser creatures. Franklin returned to eating fish, fowl, and meat, and never again in his long life had second thoughts about it. With that, we'll talk about the meat version of the recipe, and that is to chop an equal quantity of any tender meat with beef or mutton suet, and then the same quantity of crumbs, one equal beef and breadcrumbs. Remember, they like to stretch their meat in the past. And then add lemon peel, parsley, and onion. Also add pepper, salt, nutmeg, and cloves. So cloves is different. It was not in the other recipe. 
Oh, wet yeah. it with eggs. It doesn't specify how many eggs, so one or two, and work it up together. Roll into small balls. Fry them in butter. Mm, yum, yum. The size of the um, nutmeg, right? Yeah, the balls over the size of the yeah. nutmeg. Mm-hmm. So when you cube it, you could use ground beef or you could cube meat. I cubed meat and I used wild boar or feral swine, which is actually not native to the Americas. They were first brought here to the United States in the 1500s by early explorers and settlers as a source of food. So I took some wild boar and I sliced it up and chopped it, but it was fine and used that uh, along with quantity of bread. Couldn't find any suet. So I used, could use butter, but it melts quickly. There was a kind of palm oil, coconut oil combination, which is supposed to act like suet. I know that they didn't have either of those ingredients back then, but I used that to try to simulate the suet since I couldn't find any suet. But you could use butter just as well. (laughs) And lemon peel, again, about a quarter of a lemon, Parsley, I actually used a lot more parsley in the meat version than I did vegetarian version. So I used about a quarter cup, probably more than that, a little closer to a third cup, and a generous amount of onions, but not as much as I vegetarian recipe. I probably used a quarter cup, a little bit more than that. Salt and pepper, nutmeg, and cloves, you don't want to use a lot of cloves. <laughs> well, and maybe you do. I mean, it's according to taste, but that clove flavor really permeates. The meat. Yeah, I would think it'd be strong. Yes, yes. And in my case, you need a couple of eggs, and you'll just have to you'll have to just adjust the breadcrumbs according to what you think. It does come out. That's a lot more bread than we normally, you know, see. I think in in meatballs, um, mm-hmm. but we wanted to make it as authentic as possible to see what it tasted like back then. If we go back to wild boars, at the Mississippi State University website, they describe how wild boars were introduced by the Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto. In the centuries following European exploration and the colonization, oh gosh, of, you better feed that thing <laughs> of east the of eastern U.S. Free-range livestock management practices and escapes from enclosure resulted in the establishment of the wild pig population in the United States and promoted their spread. There are at least 45 states in which you can find wild boar. They reproduce very rapidly. Some start as early as six months of age, with a litter size on the average of six piglets, and females can give birth twice a year. From colonial times to the present day, wild pigs were thought of as a nuisance animal, causing damage to livestock, agricultural fields, forests, and the environment, threatening native wildlife. They've even been known to attack and kill humans. You better look out behind you. <laughs> look out! Gee. Yeah, so we, we can order wild boar online from a couple of places. It can be a little bit more gamey, but I, that really hasn't been much of a problem, I think. Definitely tastes better than the pork you buy in the store. It's similar enough. Mm-hmm. And you said they could always use ground beef too, right? Sure. If they want I mean, yeah. mutton, there were lots of meats that you could use at the time. So whatever mm-hmm. you're most comfortable with, you know, or make the vegetarian version. 
Yeah. So what was your favorite? Well, I'll talk about that a little bit more. I thought I'd talk a little bit more about wild boars and, oh, okay. and paranormal stories, you know, well, associated are, with so wild boars. Are there, are there any paranormal stories about wild boars? Oh, funny you ask that. Yes, there are. Pig Hunt is a 2008 American science fiction action horror thriller film directed by James Isaac. It was written by Robert Mailer Anderson and Zach Anderson. And in this film, a group faces a monstrous wild boar while trying to survive vengeful rednecks and a deranged cult of hot girls. So, Oh, boy. <laughs> but perhaps the more interesting paranormal story re- regarding wild boars comes from us from Texas. So let's have a little interlude to get us in the mood and virtually travel to Texas. Yeehaw! like that yeah. that was more for dad since he wants yeah. us to do some gunslinging western thing <laughs> so here we are we're in denton there's a, a website called denton haunts denton texas and ghost stories denton has its own ghoul haunting in the west denton bridges a bonnie bray known as pig man mm-hmm. now the earliest recorded accounts of the pig men are from the rockin 1950s an era of hot rods and leather jacket greasers memorialized in Happy Days or American Graffiti when young high school flames would return to the secluded makeout spots in West Denton's farming country with terrified stories of a grunting, rock-throwing, grotesquely formed pig man. Denton's newspapers relayed a warning from police to teens and their parents to avoid these spots after numerous reports of vandalism to park cars and parking coupled. But word-of-mouth stories circulated about the malevolently grotesque pig man that terrified young lovers and unwary travelers who ventured into these rural regions known as Hog Valley. Teens breathlessly told of a grunting figure scurried in the shadows of the creek bed and pelted parked cars with stones. And others told of a man-like creature with glowing red eyes who traveled the roadside with an aggressive pack of grunting wild hogs. There they are. 
So two versions exist about the origins of the pigman of Bonnie Bray Bridge. One rather traditional and the other far more ominous. The first origin tells of a drifter who was attacked by wild boar as he attempted to short cross across a farmer's land. Similar to werewolf folklore, the bites of the cursed or rabid boar then transformed the hapless wanderer into a mad half-man, half-pig creature, doomed to roam the creek beds of Hog Valley, ravenously searching for easy prey like unsuspect park youngsters on the rural roads outside of town. In the second version, this relates an incident tied to the local legends of the cowboy mafia underworld. In this more sinister account, the remote areas of Hog Valley may have concealed sites of illegal drug activities guarded by patrols of motorcycle gangs employed by the infamous Rex Cobble's Cowboy Mafia of the 1960s and 70s. During unknown circumstances that interviewees are reluctant to clarify, a leather-jacketed greaser is said to have been brutally beaten by a biker gang after having his nose cut off and a Glaslow grin carved into his face, like the Joker. A gangland sign that someone's been nosy or talking or squealing to police. Horribly disfigured and unable to function in polite society, this pig man was forced to roam the rural countryside foraging for food, sometimes raiding hog slop or taking shelter in barn sheds or under the bridges in anonymity, except for the occasional frightening. It's really, uh, you know, a few interesting stories about paranormal pigs. Oink. Oink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that would not. I, that, I don't think I want to go visit a <laughs> hog farm or a pig farm. Well, if you're in Denton, you can definitely go on a Denton hot, hot, haunts tour and hear the official version of the haunting story there. So I guess we're nearing the end. So let's wrap up and talk a little bit about the recipes and how they came out. The vegetarian one was very good. It it was tasty. Like I said, I think it makes, just like the people on um, Thompson you know, in the video when they made it, it is like a better hushpa than you normally mm. would get. The lemon really brings out the flavors, lots of onion. It's just extremely tasty. We would do it again. And the the meat meatballs were pretty good too. I was a little bit surprised. They they came out quite tasty. Um, you need to be careful how hot you get the pan because it could really crisp very easily on the edges. Would have used a little bit less clove. But all in all, it was it was pretty good. It, they did taste different than the regular meatballs you would get. A little bit of it because I was using boar, but I think uh, nutmeg and clove aren't aren't normal ingredients, nor the lemon that you see in typical. So you think if you put it in, if you're making spaghetti and meatballs, would you use that recipe for your... You know, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I had a side dish that we made that did have spaghetti sauce, but mm-hmm. we ended up keeping it separately from um, the sauce. I, I think they're almost better on their own. I'm not sure they go so well with spaghetti sauce. You could put a tomato sauce on it or not, but they were pretty good on their own. I would think a different type of sauce might be for mm. these meatballs and definitely some beer. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Of course, back then, they probably didn't have the Italian influence anyway, so they never thought about using it as a... Yeah, Ben Ben Franklin definitely had more of a a French influence. He Mm -hmm. interfaced with Ambassador with the French, very much promoting the local economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, enjoyed a lot of French food, even though he preferred simple. T- he had simple taste, at least in his writings. Like I told you before, his his wife was a wonder. He certainly partake of delicious food, and and especially going to all of these diplomatic state events that he. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's all we have for that recipe. You have any more questions? Well then, let's me. Wrap- <laughs> <laughs> no, I have no questions. Yeah, let's wrap it up. And But if you viewers have any questions, do you be sure to get a hold of us at our website at the Paranormal Food Consciousness Podcast. This has been the Paranormal Food Consciousness Podcast. Mm-hmm.